0: In the Ring with Eusebius Eusebius Mekaiser. Jacques Poe's got a new book out. It's called Our Poisoned Land, Living in the Shadows of Zuma's Keepers. Now, this book is a follow-up on his best-selling, The President's Keepers. And I'm sure you will remember just how lit that book was, including an interview I had done with him when a former Sunday Times reporter basically decided, of his own accord, to walk into my studio to come and challenge Jacques Poe. And um, let's just say that he came off second best. Jacques Poe sticks by his every word. He's doing so again. There's already litigation or threat of litigation against our poisoned land. The leadership of the EFF has sent lawyers' letters asking him, Jacques Poe that is, to retract part of our poisoned land. And his response, which his publisher, NB publisher support... Has been to say to the EFF leadership that they will not do so. In fact, the exact quote from Jacques Poe is This is the book Julius Malema does not want you to see. Well, I can't wait to interview him. I'm busy setting up that interview. I've enjoyed reading Our Poisoned Land. But to prepare you for reading it and also to enjoy my interview coming up with Jacques Poe, maybe you want to refresh your mind and get an understanding of some of the big themes from the president's keepers to which this new book is a sequel. And so I've asked Abel to dug into the archives and to get me what was a lituation when I interviewed Jacques Poe previously about The President's Keepers. Here is how it played out. That book remains important many years on. It's still worth reading, but um, here is a cheat sheet, as it were, in the form of recollecting in this edition of In the Ring with Eusebius McKaiser, that author interview about the President's Keepers. So you can listen to it, refresh your memory, and that will set you up to enjoy over the next couple of days or so my interview coming up with Jacques Poe about Our Poisoned Land, his new book that is out, which I recommend you get, by the way. It is critically important for any democratic citizen. Whether you agree or disagree with the minutiae, it's neither here nor there. It's an excellent book. It's an important book. But in the meantime, here's a little bit of a throwback to my interview with him about the previous book, The President's Keepers. In the ring with Eusebius Macaesan. Eusebius We are in conversation here in studio live with the author of the sensational book, The President's Keepers. This book hasn't been out for more than about two weeks, maybe even slightly less, and it's already now, if uh, my count is correct, on a fourth print run, and by the end of this week, some 55,000 copies would already have been printed. So even with all the PDFs that are doing the round, it is already doing absolutely remarkably well, and um, already on its current sales. Will be one of the best selling books of the last several years in this country. And it's still growing legs and it's going to do even more, uh, even better than that. And for very good reason. It is, as I said before, the smoking gun. Jacques, thank you so much for coming in. I really do appreciate it.
1: Hello, CBS. I'm glad to be here. Congratulations. Thank you. How are you feeling? I feel a bit overwhelmed. You know, when I, before the book was published, I knew it was going to elicit some reaction from the, from the law enforcement agencies. I never expected anything like this. I, I, I also didn't expect the support from the, from the public out there. Mm.
0: I want us to start off by introducing the public to a man whose name should be a household name but isn't, and he already hates you for now turning him into a household name, Arthur Fraser. Mm. Who is he? Arthur Arthur Fraser, um, there
1: was some publicity around Arthur Arthur Fraser around 2007, 2006, 2007, when the so-called Browse Mole Report emerged that implicated Jacob Zuma in all kinds of nasty um, nasty actions. But it... Browse Mole report, in the end, was planted on Jacob Zuma to discredit him. Anyway, Fraser was the man that investigated Browse Mole, and the Mail and Guardian then wrote um, an article. He was, at the time, the Deputy Director General of uh, State Security, and the Mail and Guardian, at the time, wrote a story that he, during this investigation into Browse Mole, he discovered the spy tapes. He came upon the spy tapes, and he was the man that gave the spy tapes to... Michael Halley and to Jacob Zuma and by doing that he probably armored himself mm. and then he very quietly resigned in 2011 what people didn't know is that he resigned at the time because there was a massive investigation against him for fraud and corruption mm. um, that included probably a billion rand of taxpayers money that was wasted on the most My God. Ri- ridiculous project at at state security they forged um, uh, Ronnie Casserell's signature, for example. They appointed a host of agents to work on, on all kinds of projects, from, uh, from gangsterism to terrorism to, to, to organized crime. Um, they, they produced very little of, of any value. They, bought, um, they had three warehouses full of cars. Um, they bought houses. There was a case where I think they bought they bought a farm. They bought all kinds of spy equipment. Um, you know, this, the the seventy two agents there had two hundred and ninety three cars between them. Um, Fraser appointed family members to work for the so called Pan Project, and as I said, over a period of about two three years, they wasted a billion rand of taxpayers' money. The Pan Project was. Uh, was investigated by an internal team at State Security, consisting of advocates and accountants, and they thought that there was. And they 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 in the end concluded after a nearly a two-year investigation that there was massive uh, fraud and corruption, and that at least ten senior Pan agents, including Fraser and uh, and the people under him, had to stand trial for fraud and corruption.
0: And it's a family affair, isn't it, Jacques? On page 42, Jacques writes the following. SARS investigators and analysts compiled profiles of the managers slash agents as well as their spouses and connected the dots between the companies and their directors. Although most of the PAN transactions and payments were done in cash, it was clear that several of the persons of interest had feasted greedily during their terms at Pan. One of the pan agents who acted as a service provider had eight vehicles registered in his name, including a 1.3 million Merck, a Range Rover Sport, an Audi A4, a Bajero, and a Harley Davidson. He was an active and former director of more than 20 companies. One of these companies received 27 government payments worth 5.6 million, another 57 worth 10 million. The latter still owed 5.6 in unpaid taxes. But here's the interesting bit. He goes on. And towards the end of this little section, the following is what Jacques writes. The profile of Arthur Fraser, however, didn't show excessive wealth. But here's the kicker. He owned two BMWs in a house in Observatory in Johannesburg and was director of a couple of companies. He did, though, receive two government tenders of 81,000 while he was operations director at NIA. But the profile of his wife, Natasha Fraser, made for more interesting reading. She became a director of a security company by using her maiden name of Taylor. After she resigned from the company, it received two hundred and forty government payments between two thousand and five and two thousand ten to the value of seven point four million rants. It also owed SARS almost four million rand in unpaid taxes. This is a family affair.
1: Yeah, it was it was very much a family affair. Um, his brother was was employed, his son was employed. His mother was registered. It was a it was a family affair.
0: So much so that even one dodgy example you mentioned is how in the order of ten million rand supposedly went for a community project in the family's name.
1: Yeah, I mean he, he
0: objected he objected against that yesterday when I invited him to come on. He the family has declined.
1: Well the family yesterday said is how could I have said that Mrs. C. F. Fraser, who is eighty-three, was a pan agent. Well, what I said is – now, she wasn't an agent to go and scrounge around Mm -hmm. on the Cape Flats to look for gangsters and and terrorists and whatever. She – what I said is that she was a board member of a community-based organization that dealt with conflict resolution at schools. And Pan contributed 10 million rand towards that organization, although it had absolutely nothing to do with national security. Um, and this is about seven, eight years ago. She
0: was So she was not 83
1: then. So it's very misleading what they said yesterday.
0: The other connection here, the other dot to draw for people, is that Arthur has a famous sister.
1: Yeah, Moliketsi Fraser, absolutely. She Geraldine. A, yes, she was a cabinet minister.
0: She's mentioned and then dropped. Did she know about these shenanigans or not? I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea. 16 minutes after 10. Let's take a break. Jacques on Eusebius, that's the hashtag. More about the mafia state on the other side of this.
2: Eusebius is on Twitter, at Eusebius.
0: 19 minutes after 10, I'm in conversation with the author of The President's Keepers, Those Keeping Zuma in Power and Out of Prison. We've had many brilliant books this year. You know we've had so many great author interviews. I do not say this lightly. This is... The most, one of the most important books of the last 20-plus years in this country and definitely uh, this year. Jacques, let's get into some of the granular detail in terms of how the spooks operate. One very important insight from the book for me is that the reason why the spooks can get away with irregular spending of possibly upwards of 1 billion rand is because they can pretend that the normal values around transparency that we adopted post-1994 cannot apply to the spooks because if you have to look after the country and keep you and I safe at night, then the auditors should not be let near the books.
1: Absolutely. You know, as as you and I sit here, we're not allowed to know what state securities spend on projects. We're not allowed to know what their budget is. You and I are not allowed to know how many people work there. I can tell you how many people work there and what their budget is, but you might get into trouble. So it's completely ridiculous. Their, their, their operational budgets, um, the budget that funds the projects and the operations, are not audited by the, by the auditor general. And there's, there's this complete um, secrecy surrounding the, the, the state security agency. Now we know from experience from the crime intelligence unit, for example, we know what happens when there's secret funds and secret money, and money that's not accountable for. It disappears into a big black hole. State security spends billions every year. Crime intelligence spends billions every year. Where's that money going to? Where is it? Crime intelligence has got a secret fund that's at the moment between 500 and 700 million rand a year. What value are we getting for for that money, crime intelligence is in absolute shambles. It's in—it's been in shambles for for the last seven years since um, Richard Madluli was suspended. He's in fact still the, the commander of the crime intelligence unit. Commissioner after commissioner after commissioner has failed to to institute criminal uh, disciplinary proceedings against him. So he's still the head of the unit. He still—he still gets his salary every month. He even received a bonus. Um, so what, is, what, what, what are these, these agencies doing with all their money? Because crime is rising. Um, we can see it. We can feel it. Um, the murder rate is up. Cash, cash in transit heists are up. What's happening with all this money? Why is, why, when is the last time you've seen, um, we, you've seen a, 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 a major criminal, criminal syndicate being arrested and brought to book? It hasn't happened for a very, very long
0: time. SARS used to do it. Mm. They're not doing it anymore either. But it gets worse, the story, that is, because the first big problem for South Africa Inc. is that the spooks are stealing from you and me. But in addition to that, you also tell the story, and I want us to pause here so you can tell the public some of the key detail. You also have, just as in the Republic of Gupta, we learn with Peter-Louis Mayberg how the saxon should is an alternative source of executive power in a similar kind of way it is not clear where the de facto headquarters of the state security agency is because while being at the center of the looting and the theft arthur fraser the brother of geraldine fraser molochetti also finds himself at his home having sources of intelligence that doesn't necessarily get taken to headquarters it's such a bizarre
1: situation and I don't know why why Fraser is not explaining that is because that doesn't that that's he's not going to give any secrets away. It doesn't it doesn't concern um national security. When he ran the, the the pan project, he had a server installed in his house, his own personal server. And these PAN agents I don't want to make it too complicated, but these PAN agents had to send their reports, their intelligence reports to his server at his home. And from there he would decide what he was going to send into the mainframe at at state security headquarters. When uh, this the, the state security agency investigators found 800 examples of intelligence reports that were not sent into the mainframe and they came to the conclusion that he was attempting to set up A parallel intelligence network and that because of this he's probably guilty of treason nothing ever came of that and we still need an explanation why why the the deputy head not not even the director general at that stage why the deputy director general had his own personal server in his house that is quite scary it's very scary Absolutely. And the fact, I think what is even more scary is that nothing was done about it. You know, if you think, and I, I incidentally spoke to Ronnie Casseroles last night, and we spoke about the fact that these people, um, that these agents also forged his signature. Mm. Because once again, I'm not going to make it complicated. Casseroles in principle agreed. Uh, he agreed to the expansion of the intelligence network and he in principle agreed that that PAN should be set up and he signed that document that signature was then pasted onto other documents that was used to get the money from the from the finance department at state security and he said to me last night he clearly remembers how, um, how the investigators came to him and they showed him the different documents and they said to him Mr. Casseroles, is this your signature? And he said, yes, it's my signature. It looks like my signature, but I've never seen that document. And he now plans to take criminal steps, Mm. um, um, you know, steps under the – it's certainly fraud. It's certainly corruption. It certainly um, concerns the Intelligence Act. So he clearly remembers it. But nothing has ever been
0: explained to the public Mm. out there. Everything just gets hidden somewhere. As we've seen with State Capture Jacques, the only time, well, there, there are different ways in which the information drips, drips, drips into the open society. Mm. When excellent investigative journalists like you do country duty, or secondly, and or secondly, when there are whistleblowers who do good and do country duty. Or, of course, as we are currently see with state capture in particular, when the thieves are tripping over each other. Mm. And I want you to tell the story of where the beginning of shining light on the darkness of the spooks happened, and I think a pivotal moment in the story is when the internal auditors of course, go on a raid unbeknownst to them there are c c t v cameras in the next room i mean that is a fascinating passage of thriller writing. It would be more amusing if it wasn't so serious
1: yeah when the when when Gibson ginger appointed the the internal investigators, and amongst them were two advocates, auditor, uh, uh, person from human resources, and they then informed the Pan, the people at the Pan office, because they worked away, they worked in their own their own building away from headquarters. So they informed the Pan people that the Pan agents that they're coming for an internal audit. They want to check everything. And then PAN decided, the PAN agents decided they're going to put CCTV cameras in the room where the auditors or where the investigators are going to work. They put in the CCTV cameras or the spy cameras, whatever you want to call them, but then they switched them on um, far too soon. Mm. And the CCTV cameras then showed them working through the night to produce documentation and to make receipts and to register agents and whatever so when the when the when the when the, aud- when the when the auditors arrived the next morning i mean the 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 cctv cameras had already been on for uh for about 8 hours or so now i remember <laughs> thinking that I don't know whether they had been drinking brandy and coke that night. <laughs> it because must have been it, it seemed as the as, as the as the night was going on, they were making more and more mistakes where they where they fake and manufactured documents, and then eventually, when they started started closing in on the pan agents, they got the CCTV footage showing how they manufactured the documentation and the evidence. Well,
0: thank God for clippies and coke.
1: Absolutely, <laughs>
0: I want to move to the next segment. We're going to have to take a break in a second. But for me, the next big theme in your book, which is really tragic, and it segues nicely from the rot at the state security agency to SARS. And it's mm. going to take us a good 10 minutes to get to the essence of it. But it's, it's it's, and I wanted to start at, at a high level, well, then we'll take the break, and then we'll deep dive into the details, Jacques. But isn't it sad that the sort of I've been referring to them as the head prefect among state agencies or state departments in this country for a long time as being the South African Revenue Service. Mm. Even as shenanigans in the SAPs, the Scorpions and then yeah. the Hawks happened, we could rely yeah. on men and women behaving with integrity. And for Zuma and for the President's keepers, SARS was clearly always an obstacle. Yeah,
1: because because SARS had had magnificent people working for them, and these were people that were not aligned to any party or any politician or to any any faction in government this was a that's this was an organization that while when as we progressed after jacob zuma's um uh, after jacob zuma became president and we we started seeing that people like uh, Hawkshead, Head, Anwar Dramat, for example, um, disappeared, was worked out of the system. SARS was still there to, uh, to go after organized criminals. And they brought down people like Lolly Jackson and Radhavan Kretcher and Glenn Agliati and all these people. But they were also prepared to treat everyone in this country as an ordinary taxpayer. And that included the right president. Down. And that led to their downfall.
0: And how I wish we had two hours with author Jacques Poe, one of the country's best journalists over the last 20 plus years. I can't believe some of you have never heard of Jacques before. Where have you been? You need to read all of his books in the heart of the whore, into the heart of darkness, Dances with Devils and Roads" and Little Ice Cream Boy. And of course, many of you will remember him from his incredible work at Freya Wehrblatt with Max Duprier and many other of our country's brilliant, brilliant journalists. And that's quite apart from his incredible career at the public broadcaster as well. So he's got an incredible pedigree and incredible biography. Let's tell people in essence they must buy the book for the full story. But for the shortened version, Jacques, the story of how the Gordon Four, in particular at SARS, were an obstacle to the president and his keepers. And the president needed to get someone like Tom Moyane in there. And he also needed to willfully turn a blind eye to what Johann van Loughenberg was telling him because he knew that everyone from the smugglers of illicit cigarettes to gangsters on the Cape Flats did not like the people with integrity at SARS? We have to, we have to distinguish between
1: two SARS regimes here. There's the first SARS regime of people like Opamaga Shule and Ivan, Ivan Pele and Jan van Lochrenberg and many others. That lasted until the end of 2014 and the date here is very important. And then Tamoyani came in in 2014. Now, under the old SARS regime, this was, this was the SARS that hunted down organized criminals. The SARS that was prepared to treat everyone like a normal taxpayer. Now, when Zuma um, came to office in May 2009, he was tax compliant and SARS helped to make him tax compliant before he became president. Um, they had lots of problems already with with him then, but he eventually became, became tax compliant. but then after he became president, he didn't submit his tax returns for the first five years of his of his presidency, which led to the, to, to a situation in 2011, um, 2012, 2011 2012 where SARS saw him and his, um, his attorney Michael Halley regularly where they pleaded with the president to please submit his tax returns. And they wouldn't say to him why it was so important for him to, to submit his tax returns. But, that, but, but by then, for example, they had already discovered the fact that for a year before he became president and for four months into his president, he was paid a million rand a month by security tycoon um Roy Moodley Roy. in in KwaZulu Natal and it's very interesting you know Zuma was the was the the guest of honor at Roy Moodley's 50th birthday celebration at the International Convention Centre in Durban and uh, Moodley's son made a made a speech that night and with Zuma sitting there he said my father is the most powerful man in the country and now we know why he was he was saying that so SARS already when they started when they started pleading with with Halley and with Zuma for the president to submit his tax returns knew that they were the Roy Moodley payments, which would have made it difficult for the president to submit the tax returns because he didn't know what SARS had, what ammunition they had. The second problem the president face, faces um, was with the upgrades of Nkandla. Now, I quoted legislation extensively in my book, and I'm not going to do it, to do it uh, on air. But SARS, the SARS calculated that the president owes just over 63 million rand for the upgrades. Now, there was an out for President Zuma. He could have gone to Parliament, and he could have asked Parliament to, um, to, to declare or to find that he doesn't own any, any tax on the upgrades at, at Nkandla. But at the time, he was very arrogant about the upgrades. And he said, I'm not going to pay. I didn't know about it, which we all know by now was a lie. So, so this, this, this culminated in a meeting in February 2014, and I have documentation about it, where Ivan Pillay, who was the acting science commissioner, saw Zuma in his office in the union buildings, and he said to him, Mr. President, please... We can't wait any longer for your tax returns. You have to become tax compliant. And he then warned Zuma that he, we are not going to treat you any different than any taxpayer. That left Zuma with a predicament. That he, he Now, what could have happened then, if he didn't submit his tax returns, they could have done a full-scale audit on the president. That could have led, in the end, to the to the insolvency of of Jacob Zuma and an insolvent cannot be the president of the country so at that point SARS became a terrible threat to Ivan Pele and i want
0: to underscore that insight in terms of one of the political storylines throughout this book shark because a lot of people think all Zuma and his cronies want is to continue eating at the trough but the problem is in accounting terms that some of the activity, even if you could get away with reclassify them as lawful gifts, mm. nevertheless, the size of the tax bill made people like Johan a problem for Zuma.
1: Yeah, it made him a problem for Zuma. It also made other investigations also made him a problem for the for the made made him a problem for the Zuma family. For example, at the time. SARS was busy taking down, um, was taking down a group of tobacco dealers, um, amongst them people like Yusuf Kaji and, and Azima Motkarim and people like that. They were making huge payments to Edward Zuma on a monthly basis. And I, I've got all the SMSs and I've got the, 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 the bookkeeping spreadsheets and whatever, how huge am- amounts of money flow to, flow to Edward Zuma gangsters like Lloyd Hill who's closely connected to the to the Zuma family on a monthly basis. These people would also have been brought down by by SARS because they were at that time they were in essence receiving the proceeds of crime. Yeah. Because this was the money yeah. that came from smuggled tobacco. <clears throat> um But now you must remember, this was not only happening in SARS. It was the same time happening in in the Hawks, for example, and I'm jumping now a little bit, where someone like General Johan Boysen, who was the head of the Hawks in KwaZulu-Natal, was on virtually permanent um, suspension from 2011 onwards because he was investigating a Zuma crony by by the name of Pandey. So the same happened in other law enforcement agencies as well, well so let's
0: let's fast forward the story here just in the interest of time so despite the likes of Johan pleading with the president at one point well, Ivan, Ivan, Ivan yes. pleading yes. They, they, come, they, they come before the president and they say to number one listen we are now even aware that there are some people who are hell-bent on discrediting us yeah. and that is a fascinating part of the story because Suddenly, those of us who don't know what goes on at SARS, we open the Sunday Times, and we see the story emerging. And without knowing what you have now chronicled in this book, we have, as unsuspecting readers, fresh ideas about who the good guys and the bad guys are. And here again, if you had submitted this as a movie script to an investor, they'd say to you, Jacques, this is just too fantastical. Because you even have… One of the good guys, like all human beings and emotions, and getting a bit horny, you you know, and your own folly, you find yourself also falling in love with someone who turns out to be a spy. Mm. I mean, I dropped my my you, mug of coffee at that you, part in the book. You can't you can't you can't write you can't a, make it write up. a movie script like no. This. So so not, not
1: not long after after, um, or, or virtually at the same time that that Pelé saw Johann von Lochrenberg. He was befriended and, well, seduced, basically, but he participated. He's not innocent by, uh, by, a, Pretoria, by a Pretoria attorney who also turned, to, uh, turned out to be an, an SSA agent. And what later emerged through SMSs and other documentation is that there was, a, there was an orchestrated campaign by elements in the state security agency to remove the top structure of SARS. And I have a, a letter, for example, from, from this Pretoria attorney where she says there's an orchestrated campaign to remove the top structure of SARS. So the first was the first to go was Johan van Lochrenberg because of this honey trap attorney that he befriended. Then suddenly Ivan Pele was suspended. Moyani came in. Two weeks after Moyani came in, the Sunday Times started screaming... Um, rogue unit at SARS. They ran a brothel, they spied on President Zuma, they were involved in other dirty tricks which led to a purge of the top structure of SARS, which is exactly what they aimed you to You criticise
0: the media at this point. On page 156, you write the following. The Sunday Times journalists, Pete Rampedi, Stefan Hofstetter, and Mzilla Kaziwa Africa, have contributed greatly to ending the career's of dedicated civil servants and ultimately enabled Tom Moyane to break the tax collector. It took the best part of a year for the Sunday Times stories to start falling apart. The press ombudsman ruled against the Sunday Times and found that it, rogue unit stories were unfair and inaccurate. Rampetti started a newspaper called the African Times and then you say parenthetically who the hell starts a newspaper these days unless you have government or Gupta funding and you go on Um, to also talk about how some of these guys even fooled Bongani Bingwa on a Card Blanche episode um, when he spoke to, um, I think it was Michael uh, Piga, who gave, as you say, an Oscar-winning performance. And then you say, sorry, Bongani, with tears in his eyes present to Bongani, Bingwa said, Michael is now hoping that the seven-year battle to claw back his integrity is finally over. Our colleagues in the media in particular Stefan, Pitt, and Mzela Did they make honest mistakes, or were they behaving unethically?
1: You know, I had a meeting with, uh, with Stefan Hofstadter in February, February this year where I asked him that exact question, is why did you write it? He maintains that they had, um, they had credible sources, that some of the stuff they write was in fact true, so I don't know. I mean, I think I think we must we must ask them whether it was an honest mistake or whether there was something hmm. something deeper around Well,
0: it. we will ask him because he's right here in the studio. Stefan Hofstetter will have his say on the other side of this. He We told him that Jacques was going to be on the show. He's one of the many people that I refer to in the book. And um, Stefan Hofstetter said, well, let me come and look him in the eye and tell him what, he, what I think. So if you want to know what Stefan Hofstetter thinks, don't go anywhere. You'll hear on the other side of this. <laughs>
2: Eusebius MacKaiser on 702 and Cape Talk.
0: Ten minutes to go. Stefan Hofstetter is here in the studio. Stefan, I know you're exceptionally busy. I appreciate the fact that you... I not only want to respond to jacques in terms of the cameo appearance of your name in this story but that you came into studio which for us as broadcasters is always a, b- a bonus in terms of audio quality thanks so much for being here oh yes
2: yeah thanks very much for actually giving me the opportunity to chat about my cameo role
0: because it's a very minor role why why it. do you feel besides the fact that we've extended the opportunity why do you, why do you feel you need to respond to it and what do you want to say I mean, the thing is,
2: firstly, I'm, I'm, I'm not here on behalf of the Sunday Times. I worked on these stories while I was at the Sunday Times. I'm at Business Day and Financial Mail now. I'm also not here on behalf of the other colleagues that are mentioned in the book. I think there were three or four who are mentioned. Um, I, I really just, uh, yeah, I, I suppose I feel like having a having a, a chat about, you know, my own experiences and, and how they relate. And I, I think that... Um, I guess I also just want to make it clear that when it comes to the SARS story itself, um, I wasn't the lead writer on that story, so there were you know, areas in it that I wasn't personally involved in, so it's going to be difficult to drill down into, into that kind of detail. But I want to make a general point, and that is that um, because Jacques raises this with some of the other stories that myself and particularly my colleague Mzali Kaziwa Africa wrote, that, that he seems to have relied on some people who have access to grind in some parts of his book. And I really think that, you know, that means that those people have a particular agenda to push a particular line. And when it comes to the SARS one, even though I wasn't the lead writer, I did give, get access to a lot of documentation and a lot of evidence of wrongdoing. And, you know, again, people who... Um, reviewed that evidence. I mean, there's advocate Nazreen badlinder there's advocate Muzi Sikakani, there's a panel headed by retired Judge Frank Kruen, appointed by Mishlantlanene, and then there's KPMG partner Johan van der Waal, who himself wrote an incredibly damning uh, detailed forensic report into Jacob Zuma's tax affairs, which should have been used in 2006 to go after his tax affairs, and wasn't, because of course in 2006, half the people who are crowing after, you know, J- Jacob Zuma must go, were his biggest... Uh, racing is in 2006. So I just feel that some of these aspects were ignored in Jacques' book, which I have to confess I haven't read the whole book. Um, the work that he's done on, on you know, the looting of the State Security Agency, from what I've heard, it's incredibly important and brave work. Myself and Amjali have also exposed looting of state security funds. That's certainly a big issue, and I'm really glad he's raised that, and I'm glad he's raised the issues he has with, with President Zuma, but yeah, I, just, I guess I felt it was but a little you, unfair to frame you, myself.
0: you are part. the investigator. Journalist, I'm not, but I would imagine, uh, Stefan, that you guys, every single person that phones you and says, Listen, fly out to Moscow, I've got a story for you, I've got an axe to grind. You always have to be suspicious of motive. So we will never settle differences in stories in terms of what is truth and what is not truth by delving only into the motives of the people that call you guys up for interviews whether it be at the wimpy on the r21 moscow or you know absolutely yeah so so, so i completely agree with that so So. i want to ask you this pointed question then the rogue unit saga as it's come to be known in essence as it was week after week published in the sunday times it was bogus wasn't it at its core
2: no I'm not here to, as I said, as not being the lead writer, not representing the newspaper. Uh, the newspaper has apologized for mistakes that were made. And I'm not here to get into all of that detail. Okay. But but, but, but when you say but, no, but, what do you mean by that? But I'm saying that when Judge Frank Crone stood up and said, I found evidence of wrongful acts committed, I I can't consider that completely bogus. When... Johan van der Welt, um who stands by his report, even though the conclusions and the findings were withdrawn, but the findings in the body of the report, which we reviewed something like 860,000 emails and all the rest of it, found serious conflicts of interest in some of the SARS officials, and he found some possibly criminal acts like planting bugging devices in the offices of wussi piccoli um uh, during okay. massive high-profile uh investigations into jackie Celebe and jacob zuma because you because the people who planted them there wanted to be kingmakers. um that's a pretty rogue act so okay.
0: you know, Chuck, i want you to i want you to respond there because if what Stefan is saying is accurate then an important plank in your book must be kicked
1: out you know, when, when they, for example, wrote the story about the fact that the rogue unit has spied on Jacob Zuma, that story was accompanied by, the, by a photograph of Johann von Lochrenberg. Johann von Lochrenberg only became the head of the unit in, two th- in, in 2007. When did the bugging take
2: place? As I said, I'm not getting no, into no, no. the details the No, no, no. The bugging
1: took place in 2005
2: and 2006. In you particular. mentioned it. In fact, you the, mentioned it. It no, 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 was no, no. complete I mentioned the bugging nonsense. Taxman's
1: rogue unit ran brothel. An article you wrote on the 9th of November, November 2014. Can, can we just where's, get back to the bugging? Where's, where's the brothel? Can we just get back to the bugging? Yes.
2: The bugging was of Vusi Piccoli's office and the Okay. What I'm
1: saying is your article was wrong. It had nothing to do with Johan van Loughrenburg. You put his photograph on the front page with a story. With the story of running a brothel. No, the story with 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 running the running the spy the spy, uh, the spying on the on the president as well. I want to ask you: Was there a brothel?
2: There was a memo, no, no, an internal I... memo, of a SARS official saying he was pissed off that he was at what he called a brothel. And one of his colleagues got into a fight about having to pay for prostitutes, which what? was in 2007. Now, as we all know, brothels can be run and shut down in three days. I wrote a story exposing a brothel the day after I did it, and that was Michael Sine and Corsi. Stefan, are you actually can sitting I prove there? believe there? there was a brothel. No. Is so a brothel? Why do you write it? Because there was a memo of someone. By one, one disgruntled person called Michael Piercha. Uh, he didn't write the memo. No, by one disgruntled member. Um, a disgruntled member. Well, you, I don't you know, know if he was you know. Disgruntled S- you
1: know, Stefan. I had a meeting with you in February. We sat together in we are in Parkers. We had coffee. You then said to me that at the time of the SARS Rogue unit stories, you were going through through terrible ex- terrible personal problems. And that you would wake up on a Sunday morning and you would not recognize your name on a
2: story. Do you remember me telling me that? I remember mentioning I went through some t- terrible personal problems, but are they not the issues that I'd like to raise here?
1: And that you couldn't remember your name on a story? Yeah, oh, may have said that. Okay.
0: What is the implication of that journalistically, Jacques? I think it is
1: absolutely outrageous. For a journalist to say that my name is on a story, but I'm actually not taking any responsibility for it. And to say that you were not the lead writer. You shared the byline.
2: You shared the glory at the time.
0: Stefan, your final response to that?
2: My response to that is that I would have liked to have done things differently. I would have liked to include more context. I would have liked to include more rigor in the way that I wrote the stories. And I didn't do that. And I take responsibility for not insisting on more context and more rigor at the time. And as I said to you... But let's be precise, Stefan.
0: I'm sorry, there the would be lawyer in me once more precision. When you say you'd have liked more rigour, which specific factual claims in the narrative of the rogue unit are you not able, as you sit here and look at me, to say I verified that as fact? I wasn't able to spend enough time
2: interrogating the sources, interrogating their motives. Sources Correct. about which claims? The brothel? The brothel was based on a memo.
0: So for all we know... That could be no brothel as we sit here. Correct. How can you but, but not there be was a reference to it in a memo. Um, How can that not impugn the integrity of you and your colleagues?
2: We wrote a story based on a memo that said there's a complaint about a brothel. Any journalist who received a memo like that would have said, this is a great story. And a brilliant
0: journalist will go a step further and triangulate. Correct. You didn't? I didn't, and that's a mistake. Okay, let's leave it there. Um, the publisher, Jacques, has – and I apologize to the person who's going to lose out on the interview. That's now going to be canceled. He's going to be with us for another five to ten minutes. We start taking your reactions as well, but Jacques will be with us just for another five, ten minutes. I have Catholic Guilt. If you want the book, it's and thousands of copies will be available in bookstores again within the next day or so. And exclusive books, Hyde Park, tomorrow night, Wednesday night. Make sure that you are there. I reckon – Quote me, it's going to be a launch as big, if not bigger, as the Reedy Clubby launch. And you know how gigantic that launch was. 6 for 6.30 tomorrow night at Hyde Park. Um, And at least a 1,000 books will be available tomorrow on sale. So hopefully everyone who wants a book can get a book. And um, you're going to be there signing until 11 o'clock, dude. I hope you have clippies and Coke Jacques. I'm having
1: Uh, the first one at (laughs) 3 o'clock tomorrow
0: afternoon. So... I can't get through all of your tweets. I'll do so once uh, um, Jacques has moved on and you and I are alone for the rest of this hour. So I want to get to one or two more themes in the book. If you think the media critique that you've just heard and what Stefan Hofstadter said was, was spicy, there's other stuff in this book that is amazing, Jacques. And I just, I just want to tantalize the public and then we leave it there. And I'm with Lehan Lies for all his self. as I said to my colleague Danao here at the beginning of the show, there's sort of like an air of dodginess about the guy. But he has a history, just like Zuma. And their connections are fascinating. Let's give people a bit of color. And unfortunately, the color is also quite lethal. This man found himself first meeting Jacob Zuma when they became Chomis initially, when he was in Mozambique. And you tell the story, including the scene of an AK-47. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know, Wayani and Jacob Zuma come a long, long way. You know, Wayani a while ago um, said that um, he grew up with one of Jacob Zuma's um, um, sisters, and that she was in fact like 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 a sister to him. When he went when he went into exile, he looked after Jacob Zuma's kids, and they were they were comrades. They were co- they were in fact comrades in arms. Now, to the credit of, of Tomoyani is he one of, was one of the very few ANC students that survived at the Eduardo Mondlani University in uh, in Maputo. Where he actually, where he actually graduated, but there's 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 documents that 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 tell debriefing documents that tells how at the time, for example, he occupied a uh, he lived in a flat in one of the high-rise buildings in in Maputo, and how one night he shot he shot dead an intruder and had to make up a story. Um, um, how he took the, the AK from the man and then and then defended himself. Um, you know, he he. It, it, I think it it is frightening that a man whose whose highest post in government previously was that of prisons boss was then was then appointed as the commissioner of the South African Revenue Service. But he's got a he's got a long history with Zuma. He also sat on the on the panel. That had to had to hear about the infamous Gupta landing at Waterkloof. I think it was in 2013, wasn't it? He sat on that panel, and of course, it exonerated Jacob Zuma um, or anybody else of any of any of any wrongdoing.
0: Um, so yes, I mean, he's been he's been a comrade for a long time. But he's been extremely useful to Zuma based on those historical connections, because even at the point where. We spoke earlier before we talked about the media falling for the rogue unit's um, narrative. Mm-hmm. We spoke about Zuma, the tax evader. Now, the problem for Zuma is that some files under lock and key could really indict him. Yeah. And Tom was useful because even long after Johan was cliffed, he was called back momentarily. Mm. And stuff moved from one location to being mm. under the eye of Tom. Yes. Tell the public about that
1: well you know when when von Lochemberg was suspended um, he got a call one day um, and he said he had to come into the office now he had a he had a safe in his in his office and it was probably probably the safest safe in SARS uh, one you would expect that the state security agency or the Hawks and whatever and in this safe was extremely uh, sensitive files about certain taxpayers and about certain tax investigations. And he was then told to take out the files. Um, there was an inventory was made and all the files was then carried to, to the highest office office at SARS. Now, you know, when when Jacob, Jacob Zuma didn't really comment on my book, but what he did say is that, number one, he's tax compliant, and that there are no payments that he has not declared to the authorities. And I say in my book that it is quite possible that Zuma has become tax compliant after Moyani took over and that Moyani has helped him to become tax compliant. What we want to know is what payments um, have Zuma declared in his tax returns and has he declared the upgrades of Nkandla and has he in fact paid his taxes on it.
0: Okay. Two final questions for you, and then we leave it there. The rest, I'm afraid, you will find in the book. On page 137, Jacques writes the following, and I invited the ANC on the program. They declined. And if I read these passages, you'll get a sense of why they declined. The SARS commissioner, Opa Makhashula, at first dealt directly with the ANC, with some letters going off to the party demanding immediate payment. This is in relation to the ANC now, um, owing SARS as well as an institution. The ANC wanted SARS to allow it way more time than what ordinary taxpayers get to settle tax debts. Makhashula, Ivan Pillay, and Jean Ravelle supposedly had meetings with Mkise that's really Mkize, by the way, who looks very sheepish. This is now me speaking, not Jacques. Looks very sheepish at the 702 tunnel back at the ranch. This guy has got some questions to answer about the ANC being tax evaders themselves. And then Jacques writes the following. The message from SARS was that the ANC could not ask for preferential treatment. It had to pay up like any other taxpayer. There was apparently a constant exchange between SARS and the ANC, with the matter eventually being assigned to SARS group executive, Godfrey Balloy in 2013. In a compromise brokered by Bolloy, the investment arm of the ANC, Chancellor House, came to the rescue and made a loan to the ANC which allowed for taxes to be paid. On the face of it, this would have been the end of the matter. But my sources tell me the loan from Chancellor House would have to be repaid by the ANC. If this was not done, then Chancellor House would itself attract tax implications. In 2014, both the ANC and Chancellor House would have had to make some sort of declaration to SARS explaining the loan and demonstrate how it began to repay um, the ANC. My ANC source says that some powerful people within the ANC were livid with SARS for not conceding to their demands to be treated differently. Now, here's the kicker, and this is also why this book is so wonderful. It is not a data dump. There is beautiful narrative that runs throughout it, and the following sentence is very important from Jacques Poe. He writes, it makes a lot of sense why the ANC... Would not lift a finger while SARS was being swept clean. Absolutely. That's horrifying.
1: Yeah, it is. Because there
0: are some people who believe that the ANC can still rescue itself from Jacob Zuma, but what you are chronically in this book, Jacques, and forget and, and tell me whether I'm over describing the implications, is that in fact the ANC itself, qua organization, is not blameless.
1: No, they're definitely not blameless. You know, and when I, when I say that, that. We we are on the brink of becoming a gangster state, a mafia state. Um, it's not only Jacob Zuma that must carry the blame. It's also those that, and that's what, what my book is about, it's about those that have kept him in power and out of prison, and that includes the ANC.
0: Okay. The last thing I want to ask you about is how the book ends. And it's quite ominous because... You detail, and the weekend papers carried this part of the ominous ending, the connections between some ANC presidential candidates like Ngozadana Glaminizuma and some of these illicit cigarette traders. Mm. But Julius Malema fascinates you. His tax affairs has always fascinated you. And the connections between the EFF and some of these underworld characters it's almost like a segue into a next book that you need to ask Sam if you can write.
1: She's not going to allow me. But anyway, you know, these tobacco smugglers, and what people have to realize is that the profits that they make is probably more than the profits out of drug dealing, but it doesn't carry such a heavy sentence when you, when you get arrested. And there are multiple examples of how these tobacco smugglers are trying to get higher connections in order to keep them out of trouble you know we we've, we find for example that as I said you know one of them um, KwaZulu-Natal based Yusuf Kaji had Edward Zuma um, um, as one of his directors um, Mr. Mazzotti Mr. Adriano Mazzotti um, who by the way was in 2014 presented him and his company was in were in 2014 presented with a tax bill of 600 million rand plus. And Mr. Mazzotti is also a man looking for higher connections. He already has one connection, and that is Julius Malema. Now, Mazzotti admits in an affidavit I have uh, that he signed on the 6th of May 2014 that he's a a self-confessed smuggler and fraudster and money launderer, and he bribed and attempted to bribe officials at, at SARS um that he was also looking for his higher connections now it's interesting the other day i phoned malema when we launched the book in the sunday times i phoned malema and i said and i asked him about Mazzotti and he said muzatti is like a brother malema Uh, said that yeah malema said that muzatti is like a brother and i said to malema are you aware of who Mazzotti really is and malema said no can i and i still have his, his sms can you send me the, um, the affidavit, which I, which I haven't done? But anyway, Mazzotti admits in this affidavit that he's given 200,000 rand to the EFF to, to enable them to, uh, to register for the 2014 elections. Now, obviously, he doesn't think that Malema is going to, uh, to deliver soon enough. And he's now put out his his feelers towards and dlamini zuma um now first of all he said he said in his comment to me that he's only met her once, and that was in london when they when they quickly took a photograph and whatever in the meantime more photographs have emerged not only of of uh, Dlamini Zuma and Mazzotti, but also between meetings that um Dlamini Zuma had with with associates of Adriano Mazzotti. Now, Adriano Mazzotti is also a man who has, for example, just gone into mining, and we all know what that means. He's obviously readying himself for a for an Kuzazanat Lemini Zuma presidency mm. that is going to greatly benefit him, because we all know the Guptas are probably going quite soon, and they will eventually go to Dubai and probably never call yeah. JZ again. Yeah. Um so there's already there's new jackals circling the carcasses um that want to cash in on the on the on the new regime that's going to, to come to power. Okay. Jacques,
0: when the dust has settled, I want you back on the show because I want to talk about the writing process. Today we focused on the narrative. I must say to you if you're listening to this, um as I thank Jacques What I loved about the book, quite apart from the scary granular detail and the interesting storytelling of the mafia state, is the quality of the writing. And I think if you enjoy books, you will enjoy this book as much for the writing quality – as for learning more about your society. He had me in stitches despite the fact that this is serious stuff. I was hoping, reading the opening segment of the book, that the entire book would be about um, him being a would-be chef in Castilburg. And I want to just end off by reading this to give you a sense of the writing quality because this book is a literary achievement as much as it is an investigative journalism achievement. And we have over the years had brilliant investigative journalists who can't always write and Then sometimes you have people who can write but who can't dig. And in this book, you have someone who can dig and who can write. So Jacques has a conversation early on uh, with his partner about, you know, firstly setting up his new retired life. And it turns out that Jacques, despite uh, being a very affable character, is not exactly the best front-of-house staff member and eventually got banished uh, back to the kitchen so that he doesn't have to deal with um, the customers. And he writes the following. The first few months were tumultuous. And at times, red tin roof resembled a madhouse. The whole village descended on the place on opening night. Our credit card machine didn't work, and we collected wads of cash in plastic bags. I grabbed friends and shoved them behind the bar to serve customers. Others were elevated to chefs, to or societies and skullpikies. Then Eskom switched off the electricity. Whether by choice or not, I have since then been banned to the kitchen. I had early on proved that I lacked the social finesse to deal with customers when I told a Spanish guest to F off when he complained about his Dom Pedro. Jacques, I want to thank you for writing this book, both from the point of view of country duty... But-